Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hello and welcome to World of Wealth, the podcast from Spears Magazine with me, Edwin Smith. My guest for this episode was a master of the universe in the heyday of hedge funds. The firm he co-founded, GLG, was the largest alternative asset manager in Europe when it was floated on the stock market in 2007. The company was acquired by Mann Group and he stayed on for several years. But he's now left the world of finance to pursue what you might call a portfolio career. It spans art, film, fashion, technology, cryptocurrency, and plenty of other things besides. I hope you enjoy this conversation with Pierre Lagrange. Pierre Lagrange, thank you very much for joining us on World of Wealth, the podcast and video interview series from Spears magazine. I hope we'll have the chance to talk about much of your career and your broad set of interests, including GLG and the world of finance. But I wondered if we could start by talking about Savile Row, because in 2013, having made your name and your fortune in hedge funds, you turned in quite a different direction and bought the historic Savile Row Taylor Huntsman. What made you decide to do that? It was a coincidence, but it was a logical step in what I had been looking at for investment outside of my main business. I was already doing film production, had invested in media. I had looked at a fashion business, which actually was uh, Halston and also Azzaro. And in both cases, I had been put off by the dynamics of the fashion business where the creativity of the collection will determine the success and actually more the amount of money you can flow into marketing will determine the success as opposed to the intrinsic 
quality of the product. And when, by coincidence, I had a boyfriend at the time who was in the tailoring business for women, actually, and I had private equity friends who, at a dinner party, were telling my boyfriend that they they own Huntsman. And at the time, after the dinner, he came back and said, your friend owns Huntsman. I said, what's Huntsman? And he looked at me like I was living on another planet. And I said, oh, okay, that looks good. And long story short, from them wanting to do develop the ladies' side, decided actually it was better if we were buying the business altogether. And the reason why I was interested is that that was appealing to my engineering side, which is that you can do a process and improve a process and create something perfect again and again. And so it's so the determinant of success are more the ability to scale the perfection and be able to deliver more of the perfect item and so compete on quality of service. That's something where I felt there was more repeatability in the process which actually has been ongoing for 200 years. So that's why I felt more drawn to that than to the traditional fashion business. It sounds like you were looking at it as a business person, a sort of strategist, rather than someone who loves bespoke tailoring necessarily. Well, as I said in the interview at the time, the only thing I had bespoke by then were shooting guns, Harley Davidson. And so I was new to the world of bespoke and I realized that actually... I think I was like 48 or something like that. I just realized, geez, what have I missed? Because I'm relatively fit, so therefore I never really understood the... I thought bespoke was more like if you couldn't find your right size in ready-to-wear, luxury like some of the luxury brands in ready-to-wear. And I discovered that actually bespoke is much more than that. It's the pleasure of having the perfect fit, which you never get in ready to wear, because even though I'm a 50 or 52, depending on how much I eat and train, it's not the same fit. It's not made for you. It's something that you picked up and tweaked it if needed. Yes, I discovered the art of bespoke then for tailoring and discovered that, okay, this is where I can get whatever shape or size in addition to the best fit and cut. And you choose the cut that you prefer, that flatters you the most. And then discovering that I quite like that green sort of uh, check or I quite like that blue, but I love to have it. And, and then you suddenly realize it's like addiction where you can have always another one, another color, another fabric, and it's never ending, which is super exciting. So I discover all that buying the business. You're right, I bought it as a business. And what's going on with the business now? I know you have developed a lot of the processes in the business. And when we spoke a few years ago, it sounds like you were doing some interesting things. But how is it developing right now? Well, it's doing really well, actually, which is interesting. I had a lunch yesterday in New York with someone who was super surprised that in pandemic, people were buying bespoke. So the, the reason why it's doing well is because it's appealing to people who want special things made for them, be part of the creative process, and it's a slow-moving consumer good. That's very technical, but so it's the opposite of fast fashion. And, and bespoke was sustainable before the word sustainable was invented. Think about it. It's made for you. The fabric is only ordered, if not woven, once it's been purchased. You've got relatively low wastage, 
and people are going to keep it forever. So the, the cost per wear, both to the environment and to the buyer, is quite low when you look at it. How long have you had that jacket for and how many times are you going to wear it? And now for that, you need to be that great quality and great execution. So I think these values have been highlighted by the fragility of a lot of things in a world of a pandemic. And the other thing is that we could see that people really enjoyed taking care of themselves. It's like going to a spa, that relationship, that conversation, that co-creation. I was always fascinated to see how many serious politicians, industrialists, head of governments, serious people were spending a lot of time looking at cloth bunches and decide on some intricate details. It's like the watch. It's one of the areas where straight men can really let their creativity explode. And so we've got that sort of guided relationship with them in terms of, you know, the advice and the styling advice. But so that's something that makes you feel really special and that people, and it's nearly no money can buy it. You can't find anywhere else. So it's how many things are really special and unique in this world. And that was really a highlight during the pandemic. Now, the other reason why we did well is that we got really luck, foresight or luck. But actually, it was inherited from our hedge fund world. I remember 20 years ago when we were running quite a lot of money for Middle East investors. And the typical setup was that you go there, you pick up the money, and then you leave for a couple of months, but you're not locally present. And, and then we had a presence over there. And then when I first bought the business, I've looked at it and said, wait a second, most of your business coming from America, Anglophile Americans. If you look at it, there's for one American who goes to London, there are eight who go to New York from all over America to do their business and their shopping. So this is the most important part of the planet for us, and we don't serve them locally. And so we open what is still to this day the first Savile Row bespoke tailor in New York. And we walking down between my apartment and the hotel where I was having lunch on Madison. It was very clear that initially I wanted to have the shop that is now Baluti, just down from the car line. And then I realized this is the wrong setup. This doesn't have the privacy. It's a ridiculous amount of money. So we decided actually to not be on the Upper East Side, which you're going to lose the people. You know, New York can be tight on traffic. So people say, do I really want to go up 30 blocks? And so we found a place on 57, which was actually really good because it's a private space. So it's the old apartment of Tony Bennett. So it's perfectly central location, but cheap rental because you're not a storefront. But actually, all clients prefer that. So between being in the US, which is the biggest market for Savile Row, and being able to travel within the US, because we've got a, a Brit who's a Savile Row cutter who's in, in New York based and cuts there. So we've got the whole theater, the cutting, some of the making is also made with Savile Row rules uh, there on Manhattan. So clients could still be served in Dallas and Houston and everywhere by all guys traveling from New York, you know, while they couldn't get that from anybody else. So we've actually had a record year in America for our tailoring business, and we're building on it. 
What do your clients now, what do clients of bespoke luxury things like those that Huntsman provides, what do they want now? Do you think it's the same thing they've always wanted, This the same thing they've always wanted since the dawn of Savile Row? Or do you think there are people in 2021 who want something different? How, how have tastes evolved if they have? It's interesting because one of the great head cutters before the two guys we've got now was Colin Hammack. And in the 70s, he, he was quote in one of these magazines saying that men look up to their children to see how to dress. And then, and it varies. It's probably a study to be made when it changes, but then you've also got men looking up to their grandfather to see how to dress. And whether it's from the crown or from some of these other, what's it called? The guy with the shape. Look at the haircut from the shave on the side. Oh, Peaky Blinders. Peaky Blinders, exactly. That's single-handedly responsible for a change in hairstyle. But also people wearing these kind of hats and these kind of jackets. And you've got a lot of inspiration around. And what you could see is that we saw that from a young influencer who's got millions of followers who came to us for the first time, he ordered a three-piece suit. I would never have bet that's what he would, because that's very special. Now he's going to wear it probably one piece with something else and the jacket with shorts and the waistband with uh, the waist coat with, with jeans or whatever. What people don't know, which actually I was telling my friend at lunch yesterday, is that most of our business has been already pre-pandemic separates, which is a terrible word for jackets and trousers separately. And that's not only because of a Zoom reaction when nobody knows what you're wearing underneath, but it's really more that what matters is that they want to enjoy the cut and the fit either from a trouser or either from a jacket or either together, but they want to enjoy the way they live, which is going to a club, going to a restaurant, going to the office where you just have separates much more than suits in a modern day. But then you still want to go to Five Hearts or a killer suit or go to the opera or go to, you know, that cocktail or whatever. And it's really a mix between what people want. I suspect my husband always thinks that in post-pandemic, we're going to see a kind of Gatsby moment where people are really want to get dressed to party. And I completely agree. And we can see that already. Make that exceptional. Still make it in a way that I can wear it more than once so it's not ridiculously flashy. But So the taste is still for quality. The taste is for sustainability. People, more and more people say, how long am I going to be able to use it? You say, we just read on somebody's grandfather's code for for their children so you can wear it as long as you maintain it properly and it should be decades so that's a thing we also introduced this year weekend cut it was led by a client who's got a lot of jackets for us and he loves them but he also felt that sometimes in a much more relaxed setting he wants to have something slightly more slightly less structured still with a great fit, but slightly destructive. So we basically have introduced the weekend cut for all clients at the weekend. And uh, that's been quite successful. I mean, one development that we've watched here recently is, I should prefix this by saying, thinking about the wider context of the luxury industry. One thing that's happened recently is the Chinese Communist Party's crackdown on 
luxury goods and the culture around them. Chinese customers are such an important part of the global market for luxury these days. Have you looked at that development closely? Do you think it's going to have far-reaching consequences? No, yes, because whatever the Chinese government wants to happen is happening. An investor in educational games, and so which is is a good time now. We talk about that, but the beauty of it is that you really have to know that it's a huntsman suit. So it's not like it's got a dragon on the back that you've seen on influence, and therefore you can put a price on it. It's like. Watches. You remember this guy who, after one of these Chinese moves, had removed his watch from his wrist. The only problem is that he had a big white spot of、uh, suntan, and so people found a picture from a couple of months before where there was a hundred thousand pounds of、uh, Patek. And so, while that becomes a problem, it's very unassuming. It's not branded. You see what I mean? No. If you Train and you ask the Nick Foles of this world, or but there's not that many people. They actually all clients will be able to spot that looks like a huntsman cut because the guy really looks very elegant. But so it's not conspicuous luxury. So I think, funny enough, it's something that people can really afford because it goes under the radar. And changing tack slightly now, you founded. GLG in 1995 with Noam Godsman and Jonathan Green. It went public in 2007 and at the time was worth 3.3 billion dollars, making it the largest alternative asset manager in Europe. Thinking about that other career that you've had, what made you successful at GLG? I think we were at the right time, at the right place, and and probably the right people too, because we had an entrepreneurial drive. And in my case, I've always been more successful. At leveraging people around me and putting the right people around me, more like a trainer coach type of than the guy who scores all the goal. And I've known that, and therefore I built my career surrounding myself with smart people. That's what I can attribute it. And I think there was also the time where early in the development of quantitative strategies. So in my own personal stake. There was a lot of value that you could attribute to stock picking. One of my kids who's working now in in that industry is always quizzing me, say, "Where is the market going? What do you think?" I said, "I have no clue," and I never bet money on that because I don't have a macro mind. I don't really have like whether it's currencies or markets. But what I can tell you at the time, I would be able to tell you whether Walmart was going to outperform Carrefour. Or whether LVMH was going to outperform Lululemon or whatever, but and there there was a lot of returns to be captured from the idiosyncrasy of individual companies, and so that's why I was the right person at the right time. Do you think that's no longer the case? The consensus seems to be that stock picking is a harder game than it used to be. But then again, we see people like Kathy Wood at Arc. Picking stocks and doing jolly nicely out of it. What's your assessment of where things are now? I think every generation always thinks it's more difficult than their forebears. So I think that's a kind of psychological trait that we all have. So yes, it's probably more difficult, but I'm not so sure. I think in the case of stock picking, probably is because there's more and more returns that can be explained from correlation to different factors and this sort of thing. But that also means that there's going to be more and more people following these same process. 
And then therefore, if you are able to take a step back and think differently, I think the rewards, like you said, with Cami or with other people are just, are just there. You just have to adjust the approach. I think that's what it is. You can't just be like you used to be. In 2008, GLG was acquired by Man Group and you were an advisor to Man GLG until a few years ago, but no longer do that. And so you're no longer so closely involved. But does a part of you wish that you were? Do you miss it? No, I don't miss it. I've had great years, great time, great people to work with. I miss the people. It's I suppose to what a lot of people's perception is. It's really interesting to analyze potential outcome and work with other people. I've always been a curious kid and a curious adult. My job was to basically have an interview like this and find the three things that I can invest in or invest against in that company. And I really enjoyed doing that. That was fun. And so I missed some of the interaction, but I've got a lot of other things that are um, keeping busy. I must say, I'm quite intrigued. I'm going to start looking at, again, uh, more from an intellectual point of view. A friend of mine has just joined the board of uh, BitFi. And I used to be on the board of Galaxy Investment and Galaxy Digital because I wanted to learn about crypto. And I must say, I'm fascinated. I'm going to try to keep on top of what's going on by the fight for the current banking system not to be disrupted the way that the retailing industry has been disrupted by Amazon. And when you're looking at what's going on, where you now can be paid interest rates on cryptocurrencies, which are significant, and that the credit risk is being decentralized to the deposit holder, as supposed to be more on the banking side. But... It's a question if we get to a situation where you get to like the social rating in China, where that depends on your social rating, you can get a credit or not. And if you basically get all of that distributed so that you replace the banking's credit assessment to a certain extent with that peer credit assessment, and then therefore that how much time, if you don't have an accident in the system, will it take for people to say, why do I keep my cash at zero or negative in traditional currencies. If I can have my cash at six or 7% in crypto. Now, obviously there's no free lunch. So it's part of it, which is efficiency of not having the banking system cost structure, but also part that there's some hidden risk that nobody fully understands yet. But it's gonna be fascinating because the regulator is all over this because if you push that to the extreme, that means that the interest rates setting is moving away from the central bank who are regulating these traditional currencies. So this is just the beginning of that, but I think it's going to be unbelievably interesting to watch. We've also heard people talk about central banks instituting their own digital currencies, which is partly a reaction to what you've just said, I imagine. But do you see a world in which those central bank digital currencies are very important or will there be some kind of battle to control which digital currencies people hold 
and who, who will influence that? Well, I think the, the central bank digital currency is going to be a super important development. And there's actually a study friends of my husband from Chicago shared with me something they did 10 years ago already, which is showing that the creation of a central bank uh, digital currency is accretive to GDP in a significant way because you get all the wastage of cash economy is moving away. The corruption is also moving away because everything is tracked. So that's really important. I think also it will give, you know, it will give to all the people who are fearful, rightly so, of not really fully understand what the risk they take. If it's a central bank currency, that's going to be a different story. And therefore, but what's difficult in that, and I've seen that in many industries in which I've invested, is that it takes a lot for the established incumbent to disrupt himself. And that's basically what you have to do if you're a central bank and you're going to establish a digital currency. You're basically throwing yourself in the wolf pit. And usually it's the right thing to do, but usually incumbents, they wait until the disruptors eat on their lunch to basically transform. I think in this case, the issue at risk is so huge that they must be pressured to disrupt themselves much more than that's ever been done before. Or regulate, but if you do too much on the regulation, the regulator can only slow down the, the adoption. So uh, that's going to be an amazing space to watch. One of the theories of its development, and you mentioned retail earlier, is that there could be a platform that emerges that's analogous to Amazon in the retail space, a financial super platform that becomes the platform to rule them all, or at least to be so big that its influence is enormous. Do you think that theory is likely to come to pass or might it be something else? I think it's going to be something else because I think it's interesting that if you're looking at the tech adoption by the early adopters and then the followers, it was everybody against Microsoft and then it was everybody against Apple in terms of domination of an operating system. And then it was, before Microsoft, it was everybody against IBM. And so there's a desire not to have someone, a big brother or whatever. And so therefore, I think it's going to be difficult. And Facebook screwed it up because Libra was possibly, and at the time that was pre-Facebook was public enemy in the public perception, people trusted it. And so I think Amazon people trust but there's a couple of issues. I know a business where they don't want to sell to Amazon because their clients don't want to have anything to do with Amazon. I don't have a problem with it. It's a fact of life. But I think, therefore, a centralized version is going to be much more difficult. And I think the, the giant like Google or Amazon, yes, there's a massive level of trust. But I think people fear that they've been used, they've been controlled, and this sort of thing. There's another one could be emerging if Robux which are the Roblox currency, were becoming a digital currency, I think that could take. But I think it's more likely going to be by the people for the people. So it needs to be somebody federating a grassroots, a version of what Libra Facebook was supposed to be, but not with Facebook directing everything. And, and in a way that has got an edge on the volatility side. So don't really know which way it is, but... I'm not sure it's going to be imposed by a big technology platform because you tell me which one you think of the big technology platform has got the trust of the people. 
It's changed so much in five years. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Can I ask a little bit about your own, in, in as much detail as you would like to give, of course, about your own investment portfolio at the moment? I know you've invested in film and art over the years, and crypto is obviously a, an area of interest at least. But could you give us a, a bird's eye view or tell us what you're interested in? So I'm looking at a lot of different things, but the two investments we've done this year, which are super interesting, is, and one actually comes from the days, the wife of one of the tailors that used to work for me at Huntsman have observed that they're really cool and she's a herbalist and she was making products for period pain natural remedies. And over the years, I kept hearing either the girlfriends or the wives of the people around saying, her products are just amazing. So a couple of months ago, and she's doing a master's now, in Oxford, and a couple of months ago, we had a conversation. I said, where do you want to take this? Because I did a little bit of digging, and there's not so many things around. For a woman, it's quite limited. It's painkiller, or you're basically told by your mother or your doctor that buck up, it's part of being a woman. You either have the pain or you don't, but there's not so much you can do. This could become an interesting business to develop because Many women are suffering. It's actually when you then, as a man, you then start looking at the numbers and say, Jesus, is that how much suffering there is? Is that how many days of work are lost? Is that how many days of not really feeling that great? And so therefore, we are building that as a business, which is very interesting, but also quite challenging because the traditional way 
of raising awareness is through social media advertising. But what you've had with the pandemic is that the cost of acquisition of customer online has shot through the roof. And also for two reasons is that more and more people are online and targeting people online, but also the targeting you can do for Facebook and Google actually much less accurate. So therefore your cost of bringing a customer in is basically becoming quite uneconomical compared to the value of the goods you're selling. So for a lot of small businesses, it's becoming quite tough. And uh, and I think some of the regulation around forcing Amazon to do this and that has actually got a negative impact on that, which is counterintuitive, but that's what's happening. We are exploring a very interesting alternative way of distribution and marketing, which is quite exciting. So that's one business which is really being an angel from ground zero. And just quickly on that alternative method of uh, marketing and advertising, I, I assume it's under wraps because it's innovative, but is there anything you can tell us about it? Okay, a uh, cross between Tupperware parties and Herbalife. Okay, how far can you take that? So that's the idea we're developing right now. Any of the listeners' suggestion, welcome, because we are formulating it as we speak. And because these are the things that... If this thing works and you're going to want to share with other people and because if another woman is not suffering, this is not taking anything away from you. This is actually you're doing well and doing good with somebody else. So it's not like you, you don't need to take that to win over and be better than other people, which is why sometimes selling products is more complicated because if you have it, do you want other people to have it? Not always. So that's building on that concept. So I'm the only man in the whole business, and as a non-executive, but helping thinking about it and also financing the development. The other business which we've bought, which is, it came because during confinement, where my kids are quite old on one hand, so they're from 20 to 30 years old, they did get affected by confinement, obviously like everybody else. But they were not like young teens or preteens at home, getting on Zoom and driving everybody mad, including themselves, by the sheer thing about online education. And then someone was saying, what I really struggle is that I can get him to play and he spent all his time playing, but I can't get him to focus on Zoom. Ten minutes, they shift. And it's very difficult. You've got all these eyeball tracking and all this sci-fi stuff, but... At the end of the day, when the kid is on the screen, it's difficult to keep his, his attention. And so long story short, we just thought, wait a second, why don't we completely change the teaching by making the curriculum be a game? And the whole idea was that when you are a gamer, and it shows my age because I thought game was for people who have no friends and just don't go out. I was completely wrong because actually the gaming activity is actually where people make friends. I remember when I was a kid, the only way to make friends, and I lived in the countryside, so it was a nightmare. You go to the local cafe or the local pub, and that's where you meet other people. And you get a chance to meet somebody who's going to like you, and then these sort of things happen. Then it migrate from the physical to Facebook friends, and you only meet people after you became friends on Facebook, this sort of thing. And so now it's, okay, you make friends by being on your game and then you share your gaming experience. That's where you spend a lot of your time as a child. And it's pretty cool. And so this is actually really cool. I was completely wrong about my approach to gaming. And then what was interesting is that to watch that 
if you have a child who's missing on a level in whatever game they're playing, they will go to an amazing length to basically learn how to get to the next level because their friends have got that cool stuff that you can only get if you got five star because uh, they will go on YouTube to watch how other people are killing the bad guy. They would read the manual. The same child is not going to get to 80% because his friend have got 80% and he's got 60. He's going to be like, it's also got the penalty of failing at an exam is going to be quite dramatic. At worst, you lose your year or no ice cream or no party or your parents are upset. It's a drama. So therefore, it was interesting positive psychology of failure is only one step towards achieving your goal, which actually was part of the hedge fund world where it's like you need to analyze your failure because that's how you improve. And then we thought, okay, so if we are using the gaming psychology to basically get kids to learn the curriculum, then that could be great. And I was about being an engineer and interested in math more than anything else, really. From an academic point of view, we were looking at developing a STEM game from scratch. And so we're commissioning a New York University to basically study the feasibility of building game from scratch. And it was quickly millions of dollars and a couple of years to basically do that. Then by complete coincidence, we got a call to look at a business that had great intellectual property in literacy, where the books were best selling on Amazon and still are, and where they had games in different stages of development. And where unfortunately, the pivot to the digital had not been managed with success. And we could isolate the reasons for the non-success were management solutions and cash as well in terms of putting the right people and putting the right process. It's a very different skill to be good in print and be good in games. So you really need to address with very different talent. But anyway, we felt, okay, we bought the business it's a business called Mrs. Wordsmith that's quite well known in England and in the US to a certain extent. But we bought the business and we basically re-empowered different people, added more people to good, the game development. But they have now a literacy game, which is phenomenal. It's being tested as we speak and where kids are learning words as trophies in their sort of hobbies, as they call it, is obstacle course all around a place. And it's pretty cool and it gets really interesting stuff. And so the achievement there is that the kids are having fun and playing. And there's very little that's a sequence of teaching. It's a sequence of playing. So you still have a few bits which are a sequence, not teaching, but they like educational, but it's a minority percentage of the time that the kid is spending. And the plus side is that it's very difficult to do because you have to start from the gaming side, which most people have done the reverse, which they start from the education side, and then they gamify some part of it. But the kid is looking at you, this is homework. This is not fun. And so therefore, the kid doesn't want to play it. So here, what we have is that the kid wants to play it because it's fun. And he's progressing. Clearly, you're very involved actively with 
various ventures and businesses at the moment. But I wonder, at Spears, we're known for our indices and rankings of top wealth managers as well as the other private client advisors. I just wondered if you also have a wealth manager. Do you have someone to look after your wealth where you're a bit more passive? No, I'm much more, it's not that I'm passive, but I've got a couple of people who I trust where I've got investment in their funds and I've got a couple of other people who are great at sourcing ideas for us to look at, but I'm not in the traditional sort of uh, having a wealth advisor. So I can't really help answering the Spears questionnaire on that. Yeah. I wondered as well whether you have a, a family office perhaps for other kinds of private client service. Do you take other advice formally from other people? Uh, no, I've got a couple of banks with whom I work where I can pick good information for whether it's JP Morgan, City, Coots and CMB in Monaco. So there's always somebody that can help for some of the private family office type of stuff there. And I think I'm right in saying that before GLG, you worked in the private client business of Goldman Sachs. And I just wondered whether you, looking back to those days, if I've got my facts correct, I wondered if you think that the private client world and that kind of experience of wealth management services and so on has developed a lot in the intervening period. Yes, definitely. If you look at it, one of my peers from Goldman Sachs there, a guy called David Deckman, has built an, an amazing business called Summit in New York, which is basically, it's the recreation of a traditional private banking model where you basically take care of all the needs of a family so yes there's been an evolution and today what do you think people operating in that space people who are providing bespoke services to high net worth individuals ultra high net worth individuals what do they need to do in order to get it right you know i'm not the person in a position to tell other people what to do I would only remark that what I see the successful business being able to do is that it's not finding clients for what you do, but it's finding what to do for what the clients need. And so be able to either federate the right people to advise or either have the internal resource, but be able to have as much as possible an overall solution so people can really rely on one trusted group for most of their need as opposed to have to go in a different place which is exhausting. One last question if I may, sort of looking back at your your life and career, you've done all sorts of things. I've mentioned a few of them in this conversation, from hedge funds to Savile Row to art to film to these new online learning platforms and so on. Is there something you haven't done yet that you, you really want to do? Not that I can think now. We'll see. Plenty of things. And my, my interest, what I do now is not what I was doing five years ago. And what I'll do in five years is going to be probably completely different, completely opportunistic. Fantastic. Maybe we'll ask you back on the show and you can tell us what it is when, it's, when it comes. Okay. Really good to, speaking to you, Pierre. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to World of Wealth, the podcast from Spears Magazine with me, Edwin Smith. Our producer was Adrian Bradley. Do subscribe to the show on Acast or wherever you get your podcasts. We'll have a new episode for you next week. You can get the latest from Spears and subscribe to the magazine at spearswms.com.
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.